Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, a new fight is erupting in a speakerless house. With a fractured GOP, candidates are now emerging to replace the only speaker who has ever been ousted from that job. One of the Republicans who voted to boot Kevin McCarthy is here in moments. Plus, Donald Trump is back in court for day three of his fraud trial, attacking the judge who just placed a partial gag order on him. The New York Attorney General who brought that case is now telling Trump and really everyone she will not be bullied. And Rudy Giuliani's legal problems are piling up. Another attorney has just left his legal team as the man once known as America's mayor is denying that his drinking habits have prosecutors' attention. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, the race is on to replace Kevin McCarthy, and the clock is ticking for Republicans who have given themselves one week from today to find a new leader. While speaker hopefuls are working the phones, others in the GOP are working overtime to punish the eight rebels who pushed McCarthy off that cliff last night, throwing the House and the Republican Party into expletive-filled chaos, infighting, backbiting, backstabbing. Really, you can pick any word here. The bottom line is, it's bad. I'll speak with one of those rebels, perhaps the most surprising one of all of them, in just a moment. But first, listen to how two Republican congressmen describe just how tense things are inside their party on Capitol Hill right now. I'll be really candid. I think if we had stayed together uh, in the meeting last night, I, I think that you would have seen fists thrown. And I'm not being dramatic when I say that. There is a lot of raw emotions right now. Yesterday was different. Uh, there was anger. There was frustration. And, and frankly, there was desperation going on. So far, two candidates have officially thrown their hats into the ring for the open speaker's job. Steve Scalise is the second-ranking Republican in the House. Jim Jordan, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee and a former Freedom Caucus leader. Other names are floating around, but the key question tonight really is who can get enough votes to get that job? One person that we should note that it won't be, despite some wishful thinking by some of his Republican allies, is Donald Trump. Yes, it is true, the Speaker of the House does not need to be a member of Congress, but perhaps the most obvious reason is the one that is spelled out in the House Republican rules. It says any member who is indicted on felony charges that carry a prison sentence of two or more years is required to step down from leadership. Obviously, that would apply to Trump, but it did not stop him from posting a picture on social media wielding the Speaker's gavel. Let's get straight to the source tonight with one of the Republicans who voted to remove Kevin McCarthy from the speaker's role. Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina joins me now. Congresswoman, first, I want to give you the opportunity tonight to respond directly to McCarthy's criticism of you during this exhaustive press conference that he had last night after you voted to oust him. Nancy Mace is a whole nother story. Okay. <laughs> Let's just be honest here. I called Nancy Mace's chief of staff yesterday. And um, 
Because I called the chief of staff? Well, she was on The View saying I didn't keep my words. I called her chief of staff because, I don't know, maybe I don't connect her with something else. But I just said to him, I said, can you please tell me I don't understand where have I not kept my word? You know what her chief of staff said? You have kept your word, 100%. But if you have a problem with the bill, I want to help you. But I can't sit there and write your entire bill and work it all the way through committee. Congresswoman, he is essentially suggesting that you were lying when you said he did not keep his word. What's your response? Well, number one, I would like to know why he called my staff rather than talk to me directly. And I'm very familiar with how to write a bill. Women in Congress can draft, write, file, and pass legislation. And so um, the facts are on our side. I was very public about what kind of deals and negotiations and legislation that he would back and support me on throughout the entirety of this year. That's all a matter of public record, including the timing of those pieces of legislation. And to date, none of those things actually came true. And so my focus today is to focus on the future, to focus on the opportunity here that we have as a party, as a country to come together and find a speaker who will tell the truth, find a speaker who will be honest and keep their word. Because you can't tell conservatives one thing, tell moderates another, tell Democrats something else. That's not leadership. And that's not building consensus if you tell everybody different things. And so we have a lot of work to do. We've got to roll up our sleeves. And I'm very much looking forward to the speaker's race next week. I will meet with every candidate that throws their hat in the ring. This is a real opportunity for us to do what we said we were going to do. We promised a budget and 12 separate spending bills. We promised to be responsible with taxpayer dollars. And this is our opportunity to show that kind of leadership next week. Yeah, I mean, he even said that he would give your chief of staff a job if he got fired over over those comments of what McCarthy said. I mean, have you have you spoken to your chief of staff? Have you cleared up what they actually my, told my chief and I, My chief and I... Yeah, my chief and I were, were drinking last night. He had a beer. I had a glass of wine at Bull Feathers on First Street last night, and we're just fine. I didn't hear the conversation, and to me, it doesn't really matter what words were exchanged. He did not reach out to me, and I want to look forward. I want to bring people together, bring the party together, and find a leader that we can all get behind, do what we told the American people, pick a speaker that will keep their word, because at the bare minimum, that's what we should be doing for the American people. Well, your bill on the backlog of rape kits in the U.S., it has gotten out of committee. It has not gotten a a full floor House vote. I mean, the question, though, is do you Mm -hmm. think that whoever is the next speaker, be it Jim Jordan, Steve Scalise, anyone else who who can actually get to 218, will be more moderate than than McCarthy? I think that the most important thing is that we get someone who's going to be honest, who will keep their word. And if we say we're going to follow the law, there's a law from 1974, the Budget Impact and Control Act, that says we're supposed to have a budget, we're supposed to have 12 separate up or down spending bills. That's good for the country. It's also good for both sides of the aisle because leadership will often, as you know, Caitlin, they skirt the law, they do these CRs and the omnibuses. They don't want to give the power back to the people. A select few, the most powerful, have all the say. And they take that power away from the people when they avoid the law, when they avoid doing those spending bills. When we do those bills, they're vetted through committee. They're vetted with amendments. Both sides get to have a say in the amendment process before they're voted on. You have time to read them. And it's a full house process. That is how the Constitution works. And it's good for everybody. And that's not an unreasonable sort of ask. And I'm, of course, advocating for women's issues. I'm advocating for responsible governance and oversight, things that make a lot of sense to everybody on both sides of the Because of your vote, are you concerned that you'll be expelled from the Republican conference or or kicked off your committees? 
Well, it's certainly the, the eight of us that voted this way, I mean, if you want to have the gavel, if you want to move forward united, you're going to need our votes. And I think if we look backward and, and punish people based on their principles, that's only going to further divide our conference. We have a lot of work to do. We promised the American people we would deliver results, and we need to, to do that. I don't judge my colleagues for their votes or for what their values are or their principles are. And I've always said, Caitlin, I've said it on your show, I am willing to work with anyone who's willing to work with me, period. So you're not worried about And it. that means moving the ball forward. I, I am not today. I mean, they, they can do what they want to do. I've been in a lot of fights. I was the first woman to graduate from the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina. I am not afraid of standing on principle and my values. And I will say, Caitlin, the establishment is coming after me. I've had a lot of threats about my fundraising. I'm asking people to go to my website at nancymace.org to help me uh, to, to show their support because there, there are yeah. folks that are coming after me tonight. I'm glad you brought that up because back in January when there were the marathon votes for Kevin McCarthy to get this job, he was fighting to take the gavel. This is something that you said. Mm -hmm. Matt Gates is a fraud. Every time he voted against Kevin McCarthy last week, he sent out a fundraising email. Uh, what you saw last week was a constitutional process diminished by those kinds of political actions. Of course, now here we are in October. You and Congressman Gates are, are in agreement on at least ousting McCarthy. You were on a podcast together today. You yourself the have been irony, fundraising off that vote. How do you, mm -hmm. how do you explain that to, to now? Well, I have not been fundraising off of this every step of the way. I made my decision last night. I, I made the decision to fundraise over the last 24 hours because of the threats that I have received over fundraising and money drying up, which is why I need help. The people, the establishment is coming after me. I've gotten a lot of threats from different groups and different members that they will withhold fundraising no matter what. And I do need help from the people. And that was a decision that I made late last night because of everything that was going on. And it is a genuine ask. And if they want, if, if people want to support the effort, they can go to nancymace.org. Well, that podcast was one that is done by Steve Bannon. Of course, you once voted to hold him in contempt of Congress, which he brought up today. Mm -hmm. Is he now advising you? No, nobody. I mean, I, I have consultants, but he is not one of them. I often will make my decisions on my own volition. Um, I don't take pressure from the outside world or outside groups generally. I'm not beholden to anyone anywhere, not in D.C. I'm only beholden to the people. Um, and I make decisions on legislation, on votes generally on my own. But overall, uh, when you look at what you were saying in January, if someone looks at what you said then, what you say now, mm -hmm. and if a, if a critic says that you are being hypocritical of that, how do you how do you respond to them? I'm taking it from all sides right now. And because of the threats that I've been receiving over the last couple of weeks, it finally reached a point last night where I was like, you know what, I'm going to let people that I need that know that I need help and communicate that this was not a calculated decision. This was a decision based on the threats that I've been receiving in the last three or so weeks from fellow members, from different groups around Washington and around the country. And I got to stand up and defend myself, defend my vote. And, and it takes money to do that. Um, and People can help me if they go to nancymace.org. So you don't think it's hypocritical that you criticized someone like the congressman for, for fundraising off of his fight against McCarthy back in January, but you're fundraising off of after casting your vote last night to, to boot McCarthy from his job? 
I waited until after that vote. Some people might might call it that. I'm calling it the truth and what is actually going on. And this was not a politically calculated decision. I didn't make this vote for political reasons. I did it out of principle because I felt this is the right move for the country. I want us to follow the law. I want us to be responsible with spending. But that has come, I have learned, in a very raw way over the last 24 hours that that comes with severe consequences. Are you getting a lot of backlash for, for that vote? I am getting backlash from from everywhere right now, but I'm also getting a lot of support. But you know, I've I've had folks call and hang up on me today. I've been cursed out. Someone dropped an f bomb on me when I made the vote last night. You could hear the gasp on the floor for standing up for what I believe in. But I've learned in a very lonely way that standing up for principle can also sometimes be a little painful and quite lonely. Um, I've learned that very quickly in the last 24 hours. When it comes to who is going to, to be the next speaker. One thing that we've heard from some members, Republicans, is that they want to reform this whole motion to vacate, that it can be one vote, as we saw, to, to move to oust the speaker. Do you think that should stay a House rule? It should stay as a House rule. I mean, this has been a House rule. This has been precedent for over 100 years until Nancy Pelosi changed the House rules when she was in charge. But by and large, this has been around for over 100 years, rarely used, um, and, is, and there is precedent in the House for having it as a rule. And again, this was a commitment that was made earlier this year. And from my perspective, I care about women's issues. I care about balancing the budget and I care about following the law and following our rules. And it's been around for a very long time and we should keep it. Do you think it's ridiculous when some of your colleagues are floating the idea of Trump being House Speaker when he can't be the House Speaker? Well, I, for, yeah, I mean, I, I don't understand that, why we would push a, a candidate that cannot uh, be speaker right now. But, you know, that's, that's their fight. <laughs> it's not mine. But I'm focused on who can be our speaker next week. That is a, a valuable um, endeavor over the next couple of days. I'm going to meet with every candidate that throws their hat in the ring. And I want to make sure that we get united next week. We do it quickly. And we have a lot of work to do. Certainly, that is true. Of course, it is paralyzed right now. Congressman Nancy Mace, it's going to be a busy week. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you, Caitlin. Today, we heard from the White House, President Biden saying the dysfunction on Capitol Hill concerns him, but the speaker drama did make him laugh a little bit. What's your advice to the next, next House speaker? <laughs> That's about my favorite. We'll get the thoughts from another Senate Democrat when we come back. Senator Cory Booker is here with me. Plus, the new reporting that is prompting a full-throated denial from Rudy Giuliani. If I have an alcohol problem, I should be in the Guinness Book of World Records. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The House of Representatives is at a complete standstill tonight, effectively unable to do any real legislative business until they have selected a successor to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. 
The repercussions, of course, of those grievances threaten to be grave for the Ukrainians who are fighting to defend their homeland tonight. The leading contenders for the speaker's gavel hold very different views on whether or not the U.S. should continue to provide additional funding and weapons for Ukraine. This is what Jim Jordan, one of those who has officially entered the race, told Mani Raju today. What about Ukraine? Are you, are you willing to move forward with an aid package for Ukraine if you're a speaker? I'm, I'm against that. Uh, what I understand is at some point we're going to have to deal with this appropriation process in the right way. And we're going to try to do that in the next, what are we down to, 41 days. Um, the most pressing issue on Americans' mind is not Ukraine. It is the border situation and it is crime on the street. Now let's get straight to the source now with New Jersey Democratic Senator Cory Booker. Senator, thanks so much for joining me. I wonder when, when you look at what happened in Washington last night, where this is going, how does the paralysis in the House affect your ability to function in the Senate? Well, we've seen it already. Um, we've seen deals get done when it comes to McCarthy and uh, 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 um, Schumer and Mitch McConnell and the president all agree on a big spending deal. And because of the sort of intransigence of a very narrow, extreme majority, minority, part of, the, part of the Republican caucus, the right wing, then McCarthy suddenly betrays the deal and walks away. And so it brings a lot of frustration over to the Senate when we are passing bipartisan appropriation bills, when we are getting things done uh, in the Senate in a, in a bipartisan way for having to come over here. And even though there's a bipartisan majority for a lot of the common sense things that America needs, fund the government, uh, fulfill the full faith and credit of the United States, um, McCarthy's unable to get it done because he's catering to this, or at least was unable to get it done because he was catering to this small, extreme minority. And that's very frustrating. Well, if he's unable to get it done, are you worried about whoever takes his his place and what that person is like? Yeah, I'm, I'm very worried. Uh, when you see a, a party that's not willing to say, okay, let's find it in the middle. Let's get uh, Democrats and Republicans together to do the urgent things that we have to do right now. Supporting Ukraine and defending itself by this outrageous authoritarian invasion. Funding our government. Uh, so that we can invest in the things from science and research all the way to infrastructure and healthcare that we need to invest in. And doing the kind of things that we should be stepping up and doing together in this country, which frankly, 70% of Americans agree on. Yeah, and so well, to have, have, have this government being run by its extreme, a tail wagging the dog, is absurd to me, and not just me, but it's absurd to Republicans in the House as well as to the American people. Well, and speaking of Ukraine, at least one of the leading contenders for the job to replace Kevin McCarthy right now is against more funding for Ukraine. That's what Jim Jordan told reporters today. I mean, do you believe that U.S. support for Ukraine is in doubt because of McCarthy's ouster? Well, let me make it clear. It, it is, it is, I'm confident that the overwhelming majority, Democrats and Republicans in the House, support standing with Ukraine, standing for freedom, standing against authoritarianism, and have learned the lessons of history. I know in the Senate, the majority of us, Democrats and Republicans, again, believe in standing with Ukraine, standing against Putin's unjust war, and understanding that if we don't stand here, the cost will be extra, extraordinarily more expensive in the long run. We agree in the majority here. But if the whole government is going to turn on a handful of people whose allegiance is not to America, not to freedom, not to democracy, but to Donald Trump, uh, th and they're gonna find ways to tear the house down if they don't get their way, yeah, then we have a problem. It is existentially important that we stand with Ukraine right now, that we stand with democracy, that we stand with freedom. And, and I'm telling you, 
If it was good enough for Republicans when Ronald Reagan stood up against the then Soviet empire and said, we are going to stand strong as a nation against this kind of authoritarian rule, it should be okay uh, for today's Republican party. Are you willing to hold up any bill that comes to the Senate without that funding for Ukraine in it? I have never seen the kind of resolve in my caucus, and I wish there were public meetings to see the passionate speeches given across the spectrum of my caucus in the Senate about how the urgency we all see. People have quoted history. We've had people stood up who had relatives who survived the Holocaust. The speeches I've heard in our private meetings in the Senate are so strong in support of Ukraine. And I know from talking to my Republican colleagues over there that there is a strong support there as well. So I, I have every confidence that we're going to do whatever we have to do to fight to make sure Ukraine funding happens and happens in a way that gives them the unbroken resources that they need to continue to repel uh, this Russian invasion. Yep, Senator McConnell has made that clear. Obviously, he's a Republican. On a subject, Senator, that is deeply personal to you, you know, you have called on your fellow New Jersey Senator Bob, Bob Menendez, who is facing bribery charges, to resign from his position because of those charges. Today, we have learned that his wife, before she was his wife, just before, was driving a car in 2018 in your home state of New Jersey when she struck and killed a pedestrian. Police questioned her. They concluded that she was not at fault for the crash. But the New York Times says she was never tested for drugs or alcohol, and that crash is now at the inception, allegedly, according to the indictment, of a bribe that the couple has been charged with. Are you disturbed by this new information? What do you make of it? Well, I want to start where you started. You know, I've served 10 years in the Senate this month, and I've served alongside Bob Menendez, and had found him for 10 years to be an extraordinary senator. And this indictment, when you read it, the sort of shocking uh, things that are in that, they do not comport uh, or can't be reconciled with the person that I know. But I felt like I made the right decision in, in affirming his innocence until proven guilty, but believing that he should step down. And so now there's an ongoing investigation, and there's going to be a lot of things that they're going to be looking under and looking into. The situation you're talking about, a, a human being died. It is, when I read the article, uh, it is a tragic incident. Um, at the time, again, there were authorities on the scene uh, that made determinations that I know are going to be further examined under the light of this indictment. And so I'm, I'm uh, focused right now as not just being one of New Jersey's senators, but Bob Menendez has said he's not stepping down. So finding a way to make sure that my state uh, continues to get the benefit of the work that we do here amidst this ongoing investigation that I'm, that, that I'm seeing with this, that there might be more revelations about. Do you have any concerns of whether or not he was involved in this 2018 incident? Again, I, I know what I've read and, and I know there'll be investigations. And again, I, I'm a firm believer, as much as I've called on him to step down, but I am also a firm believer uh, that people are innocent until proven guilty. The authorities are going to investigate this, and I'm sure a lot more. And obviously he has pleaded not guilty. He has pledged to make his case in court. You know, what he was indicted on were corruption charges over accusations that he accepted bribes to help Egypt obtain military aid. You are also on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Do you agree with Senator Cardin's decision to block more aid for Egypt at this time? Yeah, absolutely. I'm one of these folks that for a long time has really believed that these human rights concerns uh, involving uh, the civil society in Egypt is a critical issue that we should be doing more to pressure a resolution to. Egypt is a valuable ally to us, uh, but at the same time, we need to find ways to defend uh, basic rights, human rights uh, in, in Egypt and beyond.
Senator Cory Booker, very important topics. Thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Here in New York, the attorney general declaring that the Donald Trump show is over. That after the former president lashed out at her repeatedly amid his ongoing civil fraud trial here. His frustration was on clear display today. Details next. Donald Trump back in court again today for his third and maybe last appearance for a while at his civil fraud case here in New York. No cameras are allowed in the courtroom for the actual proceedings once they begin. Just a quick view at the top, as you can see here. But CNN's team inside reports that it was a tense day in that courtroom. At times, the former president struggled to contain his emotions, throwing up his hands in response to comments that the judge was making. At lunch, he left the courthouse to go back to Florida, then eventually back to campaigning this weekend. But if you ask the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, he never really stopped. I will not be bullied. And so Mr. Trump is no longer here. The Donald Trump show is over. This was nothing more than a political stunt. A fundraising stop. Speaking of fundraising, Trump's campaign says it raised more than $45 million in the last quarter. Obviously a massive number there. I'm joined now by CNN legal analyst Ellie Honig and Jennifer Rogers. Uh, Ellie, let's start with what happened today actually inside the courtroom because our reporters who there, were there said the judge was actually getting quite frustrated at times with Trump's attorneys and their line of questioning for a longtime accountant. The justice at one point pounding his fist saying this is ridiculous. Do you think they have this tedious line of questioning as a delay tactic? What is what do you think they're trying to do there? So I think this is the difference between having a judge trial, as we have here, and a jury trial, because I think they were trying to make a point to undercut this accountant who was the attorney general's first witness. And in front of a, a jury, as you know, you want to drive a point home. And so you may want to ask the same question in different contexts over and over and over to drive home a theme. And what the judge was basically saying is there's no jury here. You don't need the dramatics. I got it. I get the point. And that, I think, is what caused Donald Trump to throw up his hands in frustration. So the judge is trying to sort of find the sweet spot here between allowing Trump to defend himself, but also not allowing this to drag on forever. Yeah, I mean, and there is no jury in that room. Trump has been complaining about that every time. His attorneys say that wasn't really an option here. I think the judge himself caused some confusion when he said, you know, neither side asked for a jury. Can you just remind us why there's not one in this case? Yeah, so um, the AG filed their form that says they were not asking for a jury trial. If they were entitled to a jury trial, then Trump's team could have find, filed their form saying we want one. The issue here is when you're asking for equitable relief, which is mostly what the attorney general is asking for, then you're not entitled to have a jury. Um, there's some argument maybe if they had asked for one, it could be litigated and there's some outside shot they would have gotten it. But I think most people think they're not entitled to a jury. So, you know, the fact that they didn't ask for it meant that they didn't get to litigate it, but ultimately wasn't a mistake that really cost them. Yeah. And obviously Trump's been there three days in a row. We don't expect him to go back maybe again at another time during the trial, but not tomorrow since he's back in Florida. He doesn't actually have to be there. His presence is not required, right. but he's complaining that it's keeping him off the campaign trail in South Carolina or New Hampshire. Why do you think he is there? It's a great question. It could be political theater. Ordinarily, you would want your client to be there in the courtroom, A, so they can help you with your case. So you could lean over to your client and go, okay, the witness just said that. Is that true? Is that not true? Also, you normally want to show, whether it's a jury or a judge, this person's here. It's a show of respect. They haven't ghosted you. Judges and juries don't generally like that. But I'll, I'll tell you when he will be back is 
when he testifies, if he testifies, he says he, he says he wants to, he can actually be forced onto the stand because this is a civil case. And we could see him back. Next time we see him back could be in the witness stand. Which would be really remarkable. But yeah. it's not like we're not hearing from him because he no. has been <laughs> essentially speaking nonstop since he's been here. The judge actually took the step of issuing a limited gag order saying yesterday saying, don't even mention my staff, but certainly don't attack them after he was making some pretty gross comments about the principal deputy clerk in this situation. The judge has said that he would issue sanctions if Trump breaks that. But what could he really do? So he'll issue fines is what he will do. I mean, it's it's theoretically possible that down the road, if he said, if you do it again, I'm going to hold you in contempt, and he held him in contempt, you might get to a situation where if he kept going, he could try to put him in jail. But in a civil case, it's very unlikely. So really what we're talking about is monetary fines. He does it again, he's going to fine him. He does it again, he's going to fine him more. And then, you know, eventually he'll get to a point where he'll either stop or he'll have to take the next step. But, but does that, it even count if he's not attacking? Uh, he didn't go after any clerks today, but he's still attacking the judge, Ellie. I mean, how does that work? Yeah, well, the, the rules that the judge has set here is you can't go after my staff. And I, and I think that's actually the right move by the judge because these gag orders are not meant to in, enforce manners or you don't have to be nice. And I think the judge is right to say, look, you can criticize me. You can, as it currently stands, you can criticize the AG. You sign up for that when you're a judge or a prosecutor but don't go near my staff. And I think that was an appropriately narrow gag order that the judge issued. And I think if Trump does violate that, I absolutely think the judge will come down on him with a, a, se a severe financial penalty. Jennifer Rogers, thank you. Ellie, stick around because we've got some Rudy Giuliani questions Can't to wait. ask you coming up, which I know you are super excited <laughs> to answer. This is in another Trump case. Something has caught the attention of the special counsel, Jack Smith. Rudy Giuliani's drinking habits are now reportedly part of that investigation, something we should note Giuliani denied today. But what does it have to do with Trump legally? We'll have Ellie explain, or at least try to, next. <laughs> From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Tonight, Rudy Giuliani is down yet another attorney adding to his Mount Everest of legal and financial issues. The attorney who is representing him in Georgia, Brian Tevis, who you have seen on this program several times defending Giuliani, is now the second attorney in just the last week to exit Team Rudy. This comes at a time not really the best for Giuliani as he is facing criminal charges and owes millions of dollars in legal fees to other lawyers that have previously represented him. So what has been his focus today? Not any of that. Instead, he is pushing back on a new report in The New York Times that details Giuliani's alleged alcohol issues and why Jack Smith is now said to be asking questions about it. I have an alcohol problem. I should be in the Guinness Book of World Records. It's a typical New York Times malicious lie. I do not have an alcohol problem. I have never had an alcohol problem. When the hell was I drinking? I was working 24 hours a day. It's a big damn lie. Giuliani also went after President Biden today, alleging in a new lawsuit that, the, that President Biden defamed him by calling him a, quote, Russian pawn, as he did in the presidential debate. He said, 
your buddy, Rudy Giuliani, he, then he said something we can't understand, like he does sometimes, is being used as a Russian pawn. He is being fed information that is Russian that is not true. I'm trying to give you the flavor of it. You can go listen to it yourself. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> On that, joining me is former Giuliani insider Ken Friedman, who was a spokesperson for Giuliani's 1993 mayoral campaign. He's also the consulting producer for the CNN original series, Giuliani, What Happened to America's Mayor, which is fantastic. Ellie Honig, also back here with us. Ken, I mean, you hear from Giuliani there. You see his defense against this article as he's filing that lawsuit. What do you make of the position that he finds himself in? Well, I can tell you that in the time that I worked for him in the early 90s, I never saw him drink. I only saw him drink Diet Coke. So that's my, my frame of reference in terms mm. of his alcohol consumption. I've seen him at, um, at the uh, cigar bar on occasion that closed in 2020. I saw him have a drink, casual drink with other people. Um, so I don't, you know, I wasn't in the room when he allegedly told Trump, uh, just say you won, you know, uh, drunkenly. Uh, so. It was very good reporting, though, I must say. Very in-depth. <laughs> you know, a lot, of, a lot of sources, most of them anonymous, but, you know, it was, it was well-researched well, well and reported. But they kind of look into this window. They note that, and they look into this window where that was amplified. And they have all of these people, some of them who are not anonymous, that are on the record, right. talking about this and acknowledging that they do believe that's part of what we're seeing today, the grand scheme of all of these issues. Well, I, I, can you imagine tr Trump saying that under adv advice of uh, drunken counsel, <laughs> I, I won the election? I mean, that's, that sounds like what the defense will be. Well, well, and to that point, I mean, this is why it's legally relevant, because there is a defense advice of counsel. I was listening to the advice of my lawyers, and it was reasonable, it wasn't outrageous, and I had a decent basis to rely on it. But if he's visibly or detectably drunk in a way that Jack Smith can prove it really undermines that. Yeah, well, and to remind everyone, given the news cycle we live in and how rapidly things happen, this has actually been confirmed by someone that he was drinking on election night at the White House. This is Jason Miller. He is still very close to, to former President Trump. He was there that time. He was actually asked about this in his testimony for the January 6th committee, and this is what he said. And the mayor was definitely intoxicated, but I do not... Um know that his level of talk intoxication when he spoke uh, with the president. There were suggestions by, I believe it was Mayor Giuliani, to go and declare victory and say that we won it outright. I mean, how is Jack Smith looking at that, that you've got someone on the record yeah. saying that this did happen, and this is what he was telling the former president on election night? Well, if Jack Smith's going to make this response to this defense, Jason Miller's a witness. I mean, Jason Miller's a great witness because, A, he's a Trump loyalist. We, we just saw him this week standing with Trump outside the courtroom. Yeah. And B, you would argue, if Jason Miller was able to detect and tell that Rudy was intoxicated, then presumably any normal human would be able to tell the same. Hence, it's, it's unreasonable to rely on his legal advice. Brian Tevis didn't give an explanation for why he has dropped off the Giuliani case. I mean, he was happy to come on this program and defend him to talk about what he was going to do in Georgia. What do you make of the fact that he's dropped out of the case? Another attorney has. Bob Costello is suing Giuliani for legal fees. I think you know, Bob Costello's firm is suing Rudy for legal fees. Um, I, I don't know that Bob Costello personally uh, has signed off on that. No, he has. I mean, well, he's issued a statement saying Giuliani shouldn't complain about this given there's over a million dollars in these unpaid fees to my firm. Right. To my firm. 
Yeah. Right. If he was representing him independently, you know, as a, as a solo practitioner, then it might not be the situation. You think it makes it harder for him to get an attorney, though? Yeah, certainly. Who's going who's gonna to sign on to a guy who doesn't pay you? Ellie, from a legal perspective, when you look at this lawsuit, a defamation suit that he has filed against President Biden, I mean, what do you make of that? I don't think he's got much of a chance. I think the, the phrase Russian pawn is probably too general, too vague to sustain a defamation suit. I do think it's worth, in the, in the bigger picture here, reflecting on just what a dizzying fall from Grace Rudy Giuliani has had in the legal profession. I mean, he was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. 20, 25 years before I arrived there. But we revered him. I never met him, but I was proud to work in an office that he once led. His portrait was up on the wall. We, this was a point of pride. And now there's no way, other way to put it. The man's become a disgrace and an embarrassment. Yeah. He was number three in the AG's office before yeah. that, at yeah. the age of 38. Yeah. You know, he was the best of, of breed, I was told, in researching our, our uh, documentary. And what do you make of him now? You know, it could be a lot of things, really, tell you the truth. You know, 80 years old, 79 years old, could be some senility, could be, you know, the, 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 the zealousness to remain relevant, um, the avarice, you know, and the access to, to Trump. Yeah. Ken Friedman, Rudy Giuliani, uh, Rudy Giuliani, Ellie Honig. <laughs> My God. <laughs> I'll forgive you for that. Ken Friedman and Ellie Honig on Rudy Giuliani. Thank you both for, sure. for coming in Thank and you. trying to break all of that down, of course. Okay. Meanwhile, barriers have just been broken in the state of Tennessee tonight. You are about to meet the first openly transgender person elected to public office there, a U.S. veteran who ran for a right to sit at the table, and she joins me here next. Tonight, the state of Tennessee has its first openly transgender lawmaker. Olivia Hill is a member of Nashville's Metro Council. She's also a Navy veteran who served in combat during Desert Storm and is an advocate for the LGBTQ plus community. And the council member at large, Olivia Hill, joins us now here on The Source. Council member, this is a historic day for you. I know this is a really big moment. You are now the first transgender elected official in Tennessee. One of the pitches that you made to voters was that you were, quote, a qualified human. Tell me what drove that. Well, you know, I tried really hard to just work off of my uh, my experience and my resume for a right to sit at the table. Uh, I knew that trying to run as a trans woman would, would not win voters, and I, and I just ran for uh, my experience. And what did you hear from voters when you were out on the campaign trail? You know, uh, the thing that I shared with most with folks is, is people understand Nashville traffic and people understand how <laughs> Nashville traffic has slowed down. But the thing is, is all the utilities have seen the same traffic. So power, water, storm drains have all seen the same traffic and they've all slowed down. And that's my expertise. So uh, I served 10 years in the Navy where I, uh, and then uh, almost three decades at Vanderbilt University running the power plant. Yeah, they say all politics is local, of course. One thing that people, of course, will look for when you're in this role and what this means is, is a bigger national picture, though, of course, is more than 220 laws have been introduced this year, uh, most, a lot of them specifically targeting transgender people. How do you plan to use your voice when it comes to that issue specifically? Well, I, I really try to kind of separate that. I, I have a job to do uh, in Nashville and to work on infrastructure, utilities, and transit. Uh, and I plan to work very hard on that. I retired a couple years ago, and I, I plan to spend most of my effort on that. But I also will spend some time to try to advocate for, for LGBT rights, especially T. Yeah, you mentioned that you have been through a lot and that you lost a lot of friends, some contact with family members, your job. I just wonder how you're feeling tonight. 
You know, I, I, I tell people a lot of times that, you know, imagine what your greatest wish is and, and, and whether that be to Miss America or, or a billionaire or whatever, and imagine what your greatest wish and then imagine how you would feel um, if you woke up tomorrow and your wish came true. And that's what it's like for most trans people once they get to a point where they transition because you finally get to be your true authentic self and there's really not much that could ever match with that. If any of them are listening tonight and are struggling or dealing with with some of the things that you said you dealt with, feeling that, that isolation or that loneliness, what would you say to them? Just keep pushing through. Just be your authentic self and be you, and eventually things will change. People will come back around. Uh, the biggest issue we have in, in the trans community is a, is a lot of people see us as men in wigs, and they don't, they don't really truly see us for who we are. Councilmember Olivia Hill, congratulations and thank you for, for joining us here on The Source tonight to share that. Best of luck in your new role. Thank you so very much for having me on the show. Of course. Ahead, news about a member of the first family going through some rough times, maybe in the doghouse tonight, literally. From the White House to the doghouse, CNN has learned tonight that President Biden's pup, Commander, is no longer on the White House grounds. Instead, the two-year-old German Shepherd has been involved in more biting incidents than was previously reported. The Secret Service has acknowledged 11 biting accidents involving its personnel. But sources tell CNN that the real number is actually much higher than that and includes executive residence staff and other White House workers. In a statement to CNN about this reporting, the first family says they are working through solutions. A full count of commander's incidents may never be known. White House Medical Unit is actually not required to report dog bites. Also tonight, there is a new Magnificent Seven, as in seven in a row for the U.S. women at the World Gymnastics Championships. Of course, all of this is led by the comeback goat, Simone Biles. The U.S. US team won gold, beating second place Brazil. This is a streak that dates all the way back to 2011 because the team event takes some years off after the Olympics. And the victory, though, made Biles the most decorated female gymnast in history. She has added a chance to add to that record-breaking haul in the all-around and individual event competitions. We're sure she will. We also want to give a shout-out to the U.S. men tonight, finishing on the podium for the first time since 2014, almost a decade ago, snagging the bronze behind Japan and China. Things are shaping up nicely for Team USA ahead of next year's Summer Olympics in Paris. Of course, hopefully they will figure out that bed bugs problem. But don't worry, we won't get into it now, especially if you're watching this in bed right now. If you're interested, you can check out the Paris bed bug story at CNN.com. And on that note, thank you so much for joining us. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.